I know that my Redeemer lives. What an uplifting, encouraging, and powerfully sung song. Certainly we're so thankful that each of us have been able to lift our voices together in the singing of that song, lifting praise into the God of heaven who has given us those voices and who allows us to use them in a way to praise His name. In John 4.24, that passage to which we often make reference, guiding us in our appreciation of worship, we are remembered, of course, there on that occasion in which the Lord said that we must worship in spirit and in truth. Today, as we've come together to sing and to pray and to engage in all the approved aspects of worship, that does bring us to a consideration of a portion of the Word of God. As you may well know, those uh, who are reading along with us, and I would encourage you if you haven't uh, done that, you still have plenty of time to come with us to an appreciation of the attack we're using for these lessons. There's a Bible reading plan that we're following, and the lessons each Sunday, both morning and evening, are patterned off of one or the other in some way of the verses that we've read together the previous week. We currently are reading in the New Testament in the book of Matthew, and so this morning's lessons will be taken from the heart of that book. The Old Testament one we have been reading in Genesis and Job, and so the lesson tonight will be drawn from the closing chapters of Job. As you give thought to the reading each week, so please keep that in mind. Let me encourage you again to follow along in that. I hope it will be helpful to each of us having read together those verses. The Confidence of Two Servants is the title of the lesson this morning. It's certainly fair to say that the book of Matthew, very, very powerful and unique in its presentation of the gospel truths, we find in that book that Jesus is set forth as the one who would bring about a kingdom. In fact, one of the key ideas to be found in that book of Matthew, a key word, if you please, is the great matter of the kingdom. Jesus had said in Matthew 4, 17, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 16, the text that we read yesterday, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You'll notice in those two passages, reference was made to the kingdom. As you and I think this morning about the kingdom, one of the issues that we find in the heart of this gospel according to Matthew is one of the characteristics that members of that kingdom would in fact have. The characteristic of confidence, the characteristic of assurance, the characteristic of a deep-seated faith. It is with that in mind that we'll look at two characters set forth before us in Matthew 14 this morning and look at some issues in their lives and some features that challenge us about these matters of faithful walking with God. Those two characteristics come to us at the bottom of that slide in which we're reminded so interestingly, if these individuals who live prior to the full coming of that kingdom, these individuals who lived at least on the occasion of Matthew 14 prior to the establishment of the church, and if their faith and if their confidence was as noteworthy as it was, what should your confidence and your faith and mine be in this era where the gospel has fully come? I'd invite you to think about that as we make application from the lives of these two individuals. Let's begin in the early part of Matthew 14. John the Immerser. John the Baptist, we have set before us here a rather pointed moment in his life 
so pointed in fact that it brought about his death. The scene comes before us as follows. We've already learned a bit about John as we've read these first several chapters in Matthew and we find that this gentleman was one who was a very direct and straightforward and abundantly plain man. It would seem as if it would have been difficult to misunderstand what John said. He told it, told it exactly like it was. He told it directly as the Word of God had been delivered. And you notice at the opening part of this slide, he was a great man. Jesus himself testified that of those born among women, there hadn't been a greater than John, but yet the least in the kingdom is greater than him. How great then are you and I as we contemplate our membership in the kingdom. But as we think about John for just a few moments, the occasion of his death, the occasion of his passing, is certainly an overwhelming one. Beginning in verse number 3 of Matthew chapter 14, these words are shared with you and me. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto her, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison, and his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. That scene is one that perhaps we've often reflected upon, but here are the facts of the case. There are many Herods, as it appears before you and me in the New Testament, because you see that was basically the name of that ruler over at least a portion of the empire. And so any man occupying that position was called Herod, just like any man ruling Egypt was called the Pharaoh. As you give thought to Herod the Great, that first of those Herods that we encounter back in the days when Jesus was a boy... Remember, he actually put to death the male babies born in Bethlehem. He was Herod the Great, a ruthless and cruel man. But you'll also notice he was married nine times. He had lots of wives, and so there were lots of children born to him. To note just a few of them. The second of his wives was a woman named Miriamne. She bore him two sons, their names Aristobulus and Alexander. This Herod the Great was so ruthless, he had both those boys killed. He killed his own sons because he feared they were trying to take the kingdom away from him. He was that insecure. He was that cruel of a man. You'll also notice that before, however, being put to death, Aristobulus bore him three children. One, Herod of Chalcis, One, Herod Agrippa I. And one, Herodias. You perhaps recognize the word Herodias. Her name occurred in the very passage that you and I noted earlier. You'll furthermore appreciate that the third of Herod's wives, also named Miriamne, you'll notice confusion could develop if one isn't careful. 
But this one, she bore him a son named Herod Philip. So at this point, you'll notice that Herod Philip and Herod Agrippa I were really stepbrothers. They were half-brothers. Those both will play a role in what develops with respect to John here in just a few moments. Finally, you'll notice his fourth wife was known as Malthace. With regard to her, she bore him both Archelaus and Herod Antipas. Archelaus is mentioned somewhat later in the book of Matthew, at least in terms of that initial reading. He apparently, from all reports, was even worse in terms of cruelty than was Herod the Great. In light of all of those things, it brings us again to the death of John. You'll notice this particular slide was my attempt to put together at least many of the features of that bloodline of Herod the Great. And as you look at all of them, you can appreciate what is about to happen. This Herodias. And as you look at that slide, it brings us to the continuing saga of this Matthew chapter 14. You'll notice that Herodias married Herod Philip. She actually married her half-uncle. In so doing, that union that was brought together was such that they bore a daughter named Salome. Now again, this was that very lovely woman apparently that was a part of this scheme to dance before Herod. As you look at all of these, Herod Antipas ultimately abducted Herodias, forcibly kept her, in time she married him. He actually divorced the woman he was currently with at the time and married this Herodias. And it was at this point that the scene now comes before us, the scene in which John made these statements and these comments. John said there again in verse number 4, "...it is not lawful for thee to have her." You can perhaps in passing appreciate the stature that this ruler had. He was a ruling monarch, powerful, mighty. He in fact wasn't far beneath the great Caesar who was ruling in Rome. And yet John, straight-facedly, powerfully, and to the point, told this man, it's not lawful for you to have her. He wasn't speaking about political matters. He wasn't speaking about those issues or those things economically or financially. He was talking about the man's personal life. The woman you're now with, Herodias, she of course was and still formerly is the wife of your half-brother and it isn't lawful for you to have her. In light of all those things, these comments now come before us. Isn't it interesting in verse number 5, it says that when he would have put him to death. John, of course, would have been put to death, but the text quickly informs us, this ruler feared the multitude and they looked up rather mightily to John. And so a much richer scheme was put in place the scheme you and I read. Herod's birthday was finally what, of course, came about. As that birthday was celebrated, as there was much drinking and as there was much other carousing and other matters of celebration as kings were wont to do, you notice that verse number 6 says, "...the daughter of Herodias, Salome, she danced before them, and it pleased Herod." The words indicate that the dancing as well perhaps as the clothing that she was wearing was very seductive, clothing that was very suggestive, clothing that allowed one to witness and see things, and our minds need to go no further. 
But as we appreciate easily, verses 6 and 7, the pleasing dance before Herod was such that he made a promise. Verse number 7, to give her whatever she asked. At that point, he had fallen for the bait. It would appear that this very scheme was almost fully the very matter of her mother Herodias. Herodias, you see, was currently in a situation that she desired. She preferred this brother to the half one. And she, of course, liked the prestige and the power that came with her current station. And thus, she didn't appreciate what John had to say. After all, what if this present husband of hers actually took to heart what John said, divorced her, and thus strive, strove to live properly with God? She'd be out of her queen or her rulership. She'd be out of the high station that she currently occupied. And so she put in place a scheme, a scheme that went like this. Salome danced before Herod, and in so doing, the promise was made, and of course he would have to live up to it. And of course, her mother encouraged her to ask for the head of John the Baptist. It is at that point we notice very easily that verses 10 and 11, that's exactly what came to pass. I'd invite you to notice as we come near the bottom of that slide that we immediately come face to face with some very powerful words of John. Back to verse number 4. It is not lawful for thee to have her. We still seemingly live in an age and in a time in which there are so many who feel as if there is no law as it relates to marriage. You marry whom you like, when you like, for the reason you like, and you dispense of it just as easily if you want to. That kind of approach, you see, emboldened in the life of these family members of Herod, didn't they? Both in her and in him. But as you can see at the bottom of that slide, it certainly wasn't to be. It's not lawful for thee to have her. Marriage is governed and ruled and legislated by law. It's God's law, isn't it? It is that law that identifies with power and with tremendous clarity the features concerning what was the matter that John stated. What lawful? John didn't say that I don't think. He didn't say... It appears to me, he said, it's just not lawful. Consider yourself for a moment. Would you have had the nerve to tell these here Herodian family members that? Would I have had that nerve? Perhaps for those reasons, this particular slide will challenge us in the following way. That word lawful, it literally means from the original language to be permitted to be allowed to be in accord with a recognized system of law. And as you and I so easily noted, it was, of course, the law of God. Roman law wasn't the matter of consideration, was it? Galilean law was not the matter of principal interest, Egyptian law or any other. This was a far higher standard than any of them. Marriage God's way is certainly one of the grandest blessings of the human family, isn't it? It is a blessing that is so highly respected in the very Word of God itself. Marriage is honorable in all, to quote the first part of Hebrews 13:4, And that honor, that honorableness that associates with marriage is truly a fantastic and tremendous matter indeed. 
It is for reasons like that that some of these next comments so rapidly come before us. The blessing and the honor of marriage touched upon in a host of passages, not the least of which are those mentioned here. In Proverbs 18.22, that grand statesman of old, that wise man Solomon, he was there able to say that whosoever findeth a wife findeth a good thing. That wife, that is, of course, an understanding one of the nature of the law of God, both a husband and a wife who appreciate the rulership of God's laws when it comes to marriage. Maybe in light of that, that next passage in John 2, beginning in verse 1, there wasn't it true that Jesus, the very Son of God, attended a marriage feast and gave His fullest approval to that which took place. He did turn water to wine on that occasion, and as he did so, that non-alcoholic wine was enjoyed by the membership and those present on that occasion. Later in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5, many of the apostles were married. As that idea is set forth, doesn't it again remind us that marriage is honorable in all? Isn't it then a sadness to see the current state in which in our land and worldwide in many ways, marriage is looked upon disrespectfully? It's looked upon almost apologetically. It's looked upon as a lesser, more honorable way to live. And so there are many in our day who put off getting married, if ever. They think that they can do just fine without it. Live together. Enjoy all the other blessings, if you please, of marriage. Just don't get married. What a tragedy. What a sadness. Because isn't it true that if you shake the foundation of marriage, you shake the very foundation of a nation? And not only that, it has implications for the very nature of the church. For the qualifications of elders and deacons depend on a man being married. Where will the leadership in future generations of the church come from? If we ultimately compromise, the church does on the very nature of what John said in a passage like this one. When it comes to marriage, certain things just aren't lawful. Certain people just can't be together lawfully. Is it any wonder in light of that, that kind of erosion has already steeped its way rather notably throughout our nation, hasn't it? So much so that now it's sometimes difficult to find out and to appreciate the powerfulness and firmness with which the Lord stated all these things. Sometimes now almost with funny nature. Some person of notoriety passes away and it was noted he or she had seven marriages, eight marriages, or even a dozen or more. And it's almost as though it brings a smile to our face when that's not funny. That's not the slightest bit funny because it is an import into the very sanctity and solemnity with which the God of heaven set forth marriage. When Adam and Eve were there in that garden, wasn't it true that God brought her to the man? Genesis 2, verses 23 and following. And it was the man on that occasion who made the comment, She was taken out of man, therefore she shall be called woman. And that word literally means out of man. And it was then that God said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That unity and that oneness was highlighted then in the opening pages of the Bible and it it finds its way highlighted all throughout it, even to the final mention in Ephesians chapter 3. 
It is with that in mind that I would ask you to come near the bottom then of a slide like this one and think with me about this. There are times when individuals perhaps find themselves in position to ask our advice, our counsel in terms of things. Would you and I be like John and have the courage and the confidence to rest upon the law of God and say it is not lawful? That does take a great deal of confidence, but John had it. It takes a great deal of courage to recognize the fullness and the uncompromising character of God as it relates to something like marriage. We live in a time when maybe as much as ever, you and I must be convicted of what God, as well as John, said on matters like this. Because later Jesus, of course, will mention it again. In Matthew 19, that we'll be reading at one point this week, didn't Jesus say, Whatsoever God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Matthew 19, 6. And three verses later, didn't He say, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, when it was not for fornication, committeth adultery. And he that marries her is guilty of the same. Matthew 19, 9. For reasons like that one, as well as what we shall see in Mark and Luke later, we learn that this matter is so vital. It is so important, and folks in judgment are going to stand and give a response and give an answer for their attention or failure to do so. John was beheaded because he would not compromise. Would you and I be tempted to compromise? Would we find a way to give lesser consideration to the force of the moment? Would we, in fact, just not speak at all? We have to admire John for his courage, although it cost him his life. In a way, wasn't that true of Jesus? He wouldn't compromise either, and he was nailed to a cross. Even on that occasion when Pilate and others admonished him to, in fact, speak what they wanted him to hear, Jesus wouldn't do it. You and I must, with courageousness and bravery and boldness and with conviction and confidence, realize that the work of God, the law of God, is not compromisable. It's not to be negotiated. May we, like John, appreciate the moment and find those occasions to encourage others to realize certain things are not lawful. Baby, the very last point on that slide brings us to remember what was told to Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we find there that Joshua was told not to turn to the right or to the left of what the law of God had set forth. There was a straightened path that led to the appreciation before God. And may you and I realize there's still a straight way that leads to life, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. And that straightness of path, that directness of life is so often characteristic of the matters of the ways of God. You'll notice John didn't say this is a gray area. It was black and white, wasn't it? And with regard to it, John had the nerve and the boldness to say it's just not lawful. Herodias didn't like it, Herod didn't like it, and John died for it. You'll notice one of the last statements in verse number 12, His disciples came, took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. They came and told the Master what had happened to John. As we close this part of the lesson, I mentioned that we were going to consider two servants. We've looked at one, John the Baptist, and his life taken from him in the way that it was. Let's look now at that other servant later in Matthew 14, and one that too has some additional lessons relative to conviction 
and also to confidence. The scene is one that begins in verse 22. You recall that the Lord had often worked a number of miracles already by this time. Those included the feeding of the 5,000 people. On this occasion, they had been with Jesus for an extended period of time. As they had been with Him, the Lord was fearful that as the shades of evening were gathering, if He sent them away unfed or at least unnourished, that some of them might faint in the way. And so a marvelous miracle was set forth. You remember that a lad was found with five loaves and two fishes. As Andrew had made request about that and brought that information to Jesus, those items were brought. The Lord had the people command to, to sit and they, and they did so. And Jesus fed them all miraculously. 5,000 men in addition to the children and the women. Following that though, Jesus in verse number 22 it says, He constrained His disciples to get into a ship and to go before Him unto the other side and He sent the multitudes away. You notice that as evening can now gathered, Jesus sent the multitude away, but He, in fact, constrained. And that word means with a degree of forcefulness. He told His disciples to board a ship and cross the Sea of Galilee. As they did so, Jesus, by Himself, went up into a mountain and prayed. He had some alone time with Him and the Father. It's the verses that follow, though, we readily remember what transpired. As those disciples were on the water, making their way across it, a rather difficult set of circumstances developed. A storm on the sea arose. And historically, due to the nature of the geography, that can easily happen. As the wind became boisterous and as the waves made traveling treacherous on that ship, the sailors, those disciples, became afraid. As they did so, you notice in verse 24 it says, "...the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary." And we notice that we had arrived at the fourth watch of the night. By the way of the telling of the time and those watches, that would have put it between 3 a.m. and sunrise. So we were well into the wee hours of the morning. They were rowing their way across that particular sea. And lo and behold, what did they observe? You can imagine the difficulty of the darkness and suddenly an apparition appears on the water. It's like someone walking and they became trembling and they were even more afraid. Was it a ghost? Was it some other kind of creature? Notice how they reacted. Verse 26, when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid." You notice the Lord almost immediately had to respond to them because their fear might have led them to do any number of things. But Jesus calmed their fearful spirits. He calmed their rather woeful disposition. It is I, be not afraid. Peter first answered and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. What was Peter thinking? Why couldn't he just be thankful that it was simply the Lord and that it was one who loved and cared for him? But yet his first response was, If it be you, beseech me, inquire of me, ask me to come on the water. Verse number 29, one word is all that Jesus said. Come. 
we find here an episode that brings us to those remarks on that slide. You'll notice particularly Peter stepped out on that water. Talk about confidence. Talk about assurance and conviction. He stepped out on the water, something that humans shouldn't be able to do, something that he had never seen done, something he knew by his own character was impossible. After all, we know that things can only float on water if its density is less than that of water. And for the human being, that's not true. And yet Peter, it says in the next verse, when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Here was a man that did walk on the water. Someone other than Jesus. Peter. How would it have felt, imagine, to walk on the water? We know the human family strives to accomplish things. We have airplanes to help us fly, and we have boats to help us get across liquids and water. And now, we notice Peter actually walked on that water. The next verse says, But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and called him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. Peter walked on the water. We don't know how far. The text doesn't say. It could have been for a decent distance, I suppose. But at any rate, we quickly find that he began to take note of that which occurred about him. He began to observe the wind and the waves, and he began to sink. Apparently, the sinking was of a sufficient time frame that Jesus could reach forth his hand, lift him up and hold him, and by the great power of heaven manifested through the Master, Jesus, and he were able to make it back to the ship without problem. You'll notice, though, that the Lord did have some rebuking words for Peter. O thou of little faith. Little faith. He had enough faith to step out of the boat onto the water, and yet Jesus still said it was a little faith. I wonder what that might indicate and what might be some matters that could be of moving moment for you and for me. At the bottom, you'll notice that word's little faith and the worship that followed might well allow us to come to the closing part of our lesson and to do so with statements like this. What a great miracle. A physicist would have been especially delighted to have been privileged to walk on water. And yet on this occasion, as Peter was allowed to do that, notice, Peter clearly was able with sufficient matter to walk on the water. Could it be that those comments lead us to this? Sometimes your faith and mine finds itself so weak when we have in the Word of God the confidence and the assurance that God says He will do something, and yet you and I doubt ourselves too much. You and I have not enough faith in what God has said. Peter had enough courage to walk out on that water. Would I have done it? Would you have done it? I suspect it would have been a very difficult thing to step out of that boat. But yet he did. He had enough confidence in Jesus. Do you and I have enough confidence to believe exactly and explicitly all that He has declared and to base our life on it even when the culture says that's foolish 
Even when even our parents might say, that's nonsense. Even when someone else, like a close friend, might say, you must be kidding. All the while, the Lord said so, and that should be enough. Peter walked on the water. John did exactly what the Word of God had declared to him. Do you and I feel the same? Some of the final comments on that slide. When they did arrive safely back in the boat, it says they worshipped Him. They then knew exactly who He was. They then appreciated the fact that He was worthy of worship. Oh, how lovely it is to give thought to the explicit statements of the Word of God and to appreciate again the confidence of men like this. How would you and I have reacted? That's one of the questions I'd use to close the lesson. I've asked that a couple of times. But there are times today in the church, in the services of the church, do we act with sufficient faith or would the Lord perhaps with a pointed hand say, Oh, you, Randy, of little faith. You can put your name in the sentence as well. Isn't that sad? If Jesus would be quick to respond to you and me as one of little faith. Sometimes in the Bible there are those who are of great faith. Like the centurion of which we had read back in Matthew chapter 8. Remember, he was of such great confidence, Jesus was willing to come to his abode to heal his servant. And he said, you don't need to come. All you need to do is give the word and my servant will be healed. That servant, or rather that centurion said, on that occasion, those words in Jesus in reaction said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. There was a man of great faith. Here, Peter was able to walk on the water. That apparently should have been enough to convince him and to convict him of who the Lord was. And he should not have begun to pay attention to what was about him. Sometimes you and I pay so much attention to what's going on around us. We let the culture tell us what's wrong and right. We let the way people think and what they believe lead us to compromise what we know the Word says. May we not be given to that error. May we, like John, know what's lawful and not. And may we, like Peter, have the courage to start and do exactly what the Lord said and not pay attention to what's going on about us. May we strive to safeguard that confidence and to appreciate that that confidence will redound in this life to a life of great power for others. You notice that later in the New Testament in 1 John 5, 13, that kind of confidence is expressed in words like this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You may know that ye have eternal life. Do you today know that you have eternal life or is there some doubt? Is there some doubt resting in your mind? If there is, let's make it right today. After all, there are certain things that are not lawful. And there are certain things that are absolute tragedies. It would be so sad to leave this life not ready to meet the Maker. If today you aren't a Christian, why not? Why not be like Peter? Step out on the greatness of faith and obey the gospel today. You'll notice there was a crowd of people on the boat watching Peter step out. There's a crowd of people here that would be excited to celebrate with you, to sing praises of honor to God on your behalf. Today, if you need to respond to the gospel, you need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. But upon that belief, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. At that point, walk faithfully until death.
If you've stumbled and fallen in a way that's brought reproach on you and on the church, why not come back to your first love today? Let us pray with you and for you. And if we could be of assistance to you, let the courage and confidence of both John and Peter be an example to you to do the same. And if we could help you today, why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?